QTR Podcast. The fuck's going on? July 7th, great day to learn about the history of everything that's ever happened so far in the entire universe as we know it. In like two hours or less, or your fucking pizza's free. Hello! Is everybody having a good day? I am. This is the QTR Podcast, and this podcast is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I am going to shout out some of those patrons right now, give them some love, then I'm going to give you the rules for the podcast, and we're going to get started with our guest today. First and foremost, this podcast is brought to you by my official gold and silver bullion Providers over at JM Bullion. JM Bullion has been in business for nearly a decade now. They have been selling gold and silver bullion and have made a fantastic reputation for themselves over the last decade nearly. They've done almost $3 billion, over $3 billion in business, and they are the only gold and silver bullion shop that I shop from. Why? A, they support the podcast, which always fucking helps, but honestly... I prefer them to the other shops that I've used. They turn my orders around a lot quicker. They ship them a lot faster. I've noticed they have better inventory. The prices are competitive. So I really like the folks over at JM Bullion. And if you are a QTR podcast listener, you actually have your own JM Bullion sales rep already. Her name is Kathy, K-A-T-H-Y at jmbullion.com so if you want to reach out to somebody you want some personalized service you don't just want to go fuck around randomly on a website and be treated like another number another autonomous uh you know customer that check out my friend kathy over at jm bullion give her a shout you could be a first time or second time gold or silver buyer or you could be very well versed in the business buying huge sums of bullion either way she's happy to help she will offer you free shipping and maybe she'll give you a discount if you're super nice to her. Check out my friends over at jmbullion.com. This podcast also brought to you by The Trader's Path. The Trader's Path is a brand new investing and day trading service. It is a wonderful little community started by a gentleman that I know named Pete Hedgetus who wanted to start his own investing community because he got tired of the other ones that he belonged to where he felt like he was being taken advantage of. He felt like the people that ran these services were front-running him. He felt like they were just taking his money and leaving him out in the cold. So he said, I can do better than this. I'm going to start my own service that doesn't blow for the people that sign up to it. And that's exactly what he did. So he started himself a community now that offers daily live streams, daily watch lists, investor educations. They trade in all different types of markets. They trade options. They trade stocks. Pete is an honest guy to do business with. His service is wonderful. It's a great community. And with the markets as volatile as they are right now, it's always nice to be able to surround yourself with people that you can have some discourse with and shoot the shit with. Pete, I know for a fact if you reach out to him, we'll hook you up and you tell him, Hey, I heard your shit on the QTR podcast. What can you do for me? He would be happy to try to cut you a deal, work with you on something uh, that will work towards your budget and so that you get a chance to check out the Trader's Path. This podcast is also brought to you by the Sang Lucci Steam Room, the Sang Lucci 3LT Playbook, and the Sang Lucci Master Course. Let's go through them real quick. Let's go through them real quick. The Steam Room is a piece of software and an online room that tracks money moving into the illiquid options market. Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus have been doing this shit 
for longer than anybody that I have seen. As far as I'm concerned, they were one of the originals to take unusual options action coming into the market and turn that into a piece of software that makes it easy for you to see where the big money is going in the options market. I know a lot of services offer something similar, but nobody does it like Wall Street Jesus. These guys have had a decade to fine-tune their software. It is a beautiful piece of software. If you follow Wall Street Jesus on Twitter or you follow Lucci on Twitter, you understand exactly the quality of the flow that they point out to their customers it is really it's one of those products that can pay for itself if you don't use it like a herb uh, in relatively short order the 3lt playbook are lucci's three rules of how he became a seven-figure trader and the sang lucci master course is a great way to sign up for a financial education if you don't want the bullshit and jargon and nonsense that some Harvard graduate in a bow tie with little embroidered ducks on it is going to give to you. If you want a real talk about really what's going on in the markets with a real motherfucker, check out Sang Lucci's Master Course. This podcast, by the way, links to all of those things are in the podcast description. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold, my buddy Robert Mizello, Shipping analyst Jay Mintzmeyer, my buddy Russ Valenti, Nicholas Parks, Nathan Machado, my favorite charity, Traders for a Cause, Chris Bede, Ken R., Crichton Titus, Big Dog, Will Smith, Michelle Koenig, Dylan Davis, J.K. Cunningham, Stank Love, Brainerd Ferguson. Thank you guys so much for your continued support of the podcast. And finally, I'll shout out some patrons that are new to sign up, some people that have signed up recently like my buddy, Mason Larabina, thank you, my brother Mason. Phantom Dills is in the house. What's good? Nick Beer and Aaron, thank you for signing up. I appreciate it. Jake Gordon, saw your shit come in the other day. My homeboy Adam Bell, Jay Powell, and Alan Weber. And some people that have been with me for a little while, like John Edwards, thank you for your continued support. My buddy Daniel GZZC is still with me. Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate that. Bad Daddy Publishing still supporting me. Edward Chiolo, thank you, my friend. I still see you. Andrew Washko, I appreciate you. Santo and Will and Danny Hughes and Andrew Marsh, Gary Wozniak, James Cottom, thank you guys for your continued support. Two rules for the podcast. There's always a two-drink minimum, folks. Today might blow your fucking mind, so if you want to go for three, I'll encourage that. And finally... This podcast is not investing advice, life advice. Be forewarned up front, according to one guy on the iTunes rating store, this is the worst podcast in history, and that is a label that I embrace. Let's get started. All right, I'm really happy to have Mark DeFont, Dr. Mark DeFont, back on the podcast today. I had him on back uh, just about almost a month ago to the day. I had saw Mark on the Joe Rogan podcast debating with Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson on number 961, and I thought what he had to say was very interesting. And since then, uh, I have followed him on Twitter, and we really see the world through a similar lens, it looks like, and I love confirmation bias, so (laughs) (laughs) I I wanted to bring Mark back on, especially because last time... Uh, we didn't really get a chance to talk about his book. We got we got onto other topics, and so I told him I want to do another podcast, and we'll talk about your book. So Mark Defont, he's a professor of geology, geochemistry at the University of South Florida, 
before he became involved in research related to the misuse or misunderstanding of science by society. He specialized in the study of volcanoes, more specifically the geochemistry of volcanic rocks, the associated processes within the mantle, and the origin of the continental crust. He's been funded by the National Science Foundation, National Geographic, the American Chemical Society, and the National Academy of Sciences, and he has published in many international renowned scientific journals, including Nature. He has also written a book that we're going to discuss today called Voyage of Discovery from the Big Bang to the Ice Age. How the hell are you, Mark DeFont? What's up? I'm doing great, Chris. Great to be back. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you for sitting through that lengthy introduction. And just know that my listeners have already had to sit through seven minutes of other introductions, so you got off easy. So we'll have to get cranking on the on the good stuff quickly here, won't we? <laughs> well, listen... I want you to tell me a little bit about why you decided to write this book and how is it that you're basically talking about the history of the universe. Um, What perspective are you coming from in writing this that would be different from like an astrophysicist that would put out a book like this? Well, I guess the, the answer to that question is a little complex. An astrophysicist would probably concentrate on the astronomical parts of the book, you know, anything dealing with astronomy. But uh, I cover it all, not just the, the formation of the universe and the evolution of the universe, the as- astronomy aspects, but I also get into the uh, life on Earth, how the continents formed, uh, just to touch on a few things, the evolution of animals on the planet, uh, how humans evolved, uh, the ice age. So it's kind of a, you know, a very broad history. And you asked me, you know, how I would get interested in a thing like that. Well, the, the big problem with me is I read a lot. And as a consequence, I, maybe I don't have, uh, as much a memory for those tiny little details, which, it irritatingly in the way uh, I'm more interested in these big picture kinds of things so I I, I kind of remember big picture things and try not to get lost in the details which gets me in trouble sometimes uh, you know you might you might think um, that the details uh, uh, would be important and they are and sometimes if you don't keep up on the details you mix up the big picture but anyway uh, I got started on this particular subject because I used to teach an honors program at the University of South Florida. Um, that was before we went online, and now I'm teaching mainly online. But in the honors program, I was trying to get across to the students uh, generally science in general and what's what I thought was important in science. And I thought, gee, maybe if I gave them some aspects about uh, how the big picture formed and looked, that that would get them excited. I, I know one thing that's gotten me excited over the years, and then I kind of put notes together from that class and finally ended up deciding to write a book uh, on it all, mostly for the class, but later on it, it kind of s- sold to the general population. And that was the first edition, which came out in 98, and now 
I've had to put together all kinds of videos and things like that just to update the book because, believe it or not, science is changing all the time with updates, particularly on the astronomical side where they're sending up satellites all the time and uh, studying the planets and understanding more about the planets. So that's basically how I got interested in it. And, boy, you can see it in the students' eyes. You know, you talk about this stuff, they perk up, they get excited. Uh, I think I think natural disasters, sex, are the two most important things you can talk to, to your class about to keep them awake. <laughs> and uh, I can work all those things into into this subject matter. So it keeps them going which will leave my listeners wondering if there's pictures in the book so don't spoil it for them and <laughs> confirm or deny okay. whether there are you know, okay you, you have to buy the book if you want to find out if there's you know diagrams of uh how those things work i remember being in college mark and my the one class that i really enjoyed and i really can't think of a class that i enjoyed in college I found them all to be time-consuming and annoying. Ooh, sorry to hear that. <laughs> but the one class that I enjoyed, which had nothing to do with my major, was an astronomy class. And my professor, his name was John Stoller. He's like one of the only professors whose name I remember. We had a planetarium on campus. And just listening to him speak, I remember sitting in the first lecture of the first day and thinking to myself, how is it possible that this guy understands the vast amount of distances and space that he was, he was describing something having to do with binary star systems or the planet or, you know, such and such as X amount of light years away. And I just remember thinking, how does he even, how does he even conceptualize that in his head. You know, the average person, like my listener, who's probably crushing a beer can on their forehead right now, Mark, <laughs> probably thinks, you know, well, it's 40 miles from here to fucking Toledo. You know, that's a long stretch. It's like, no. Like, start talking about from here to the moon. Start talking about from the moon to other galaxies. And it's it's almost inconceivable, isn't it? Oh, oh it is. I can relate to what you're saying because I deal in deep time, which as a geologist means basically that, you know, what happened uh, 400 years ago seems like a short time compared to the kinds of times that we're dealing with. I was typically on volcanoes that had eruptions two or three million years ago, and that's that's even considered young in geological perspective. So it's the vastness of time. We've been on this planet, or this planet's been around for four and a half billion years. Right. And right. you look out, yeah, and so you, you get a, you know, you get some sense there about all of the rocks uh, that have formed in that span of time, all the different types in the and the aspect of time. And then the fun thing about the universe, too, is that not only are, are you dealing with time, but you're also dealing with that distance aspect. And if you combine those two, wow, it really gets crazy. Like when you look out in, into – tell me if I'm getting off on too many details here. but we have, unlimited, look, we have unlimited time, and you can speak for as long as you'd like about anything that you want, all right? Well, I hope we can get your opinions on some of this, too, but – I look at 
if, if, when you look back out, or you look out into space, you're literally looking back on time. I, I think most of your listeners probably know this, but to, to get the magnitude of that, what what it means really is that we don't know what's happening right now. Right. For example, if the sun uh, died right now, it would take eight minutes before we'd find out about it. Uh, now, that's just a local thing, but it, that's how long it takes for light to get from the sun to us, a little over eight minutes. I think it's eight minutes, 20 seconds. So so that's kind of a, an amazing thing when you think about it. If you want to know why the, the sky at night is, is dark, well, it's probably due to the fact that most of the stars out there we can't see. The light hasn't reached us yet. And as we go through a long period of time, some of that light will be, uh, begin to reach us. But if it's a good thing that light doesn't reach us because the temperature on the planet would be too hot for, for life to exist. So those are kind of weird things. And because we can't see what's out there, because it's, you know, it, it's, it, the light hasn't reached us yet, we still call the observable universe anything that we could see right now. And that observable universe is something on the order of 93 billion light years across. <laughs> so try to put that into perspective. Take light 93 billion years to get across our universe. And that's just the observable universe. That doesn't talk about all of the universe that's out there that has expanded beyond uh, what we call the observable universe. So kind of cool perspective. To put it into perspective, our galaxy is only 25,000 light years across. Our, our distance from the center of the galaxy is only 25,000 light years. So I'm glad you brought this up because distance is really, um, well, distance and time, they're really amazing, amazing features. It's wild. Of- it's wild too. I went a couple years back to check out uh, the King Tut exhibit at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. And I, you know, I've always also been fascinated by ancient Egypt, which I know you guys talked a lot about on that podcast. And one thing, one thing I'll uh, give Joe Rogan credit for on his podcast is he's always talking about, he, he often brings up, you know, how long ago we think that was, but really how short it is in the grand uh, span of time. So when you look at those Egyptian artifacts, which really, I look at those things like it was another planet at another... I mean, it's so foreign and so alien, the way that they were living back then. It uh, is. You just... It's like science fiction to some degree. You can't even fathom it. And then when you say, okay, well, that was 3,000 years ago, Mark, right? It's like, why don't you add a couple of commas and a couple of zeros and, yeah, no kidding. And go and go back even further. Like you think things were wild three thousand years ago. Let's talk about you know a billion years ago. Yeah, uh, sometimes I'm walking along and I, and I and I have a flash of oh my gosh, there were Romans walking around back in <laughs> three thousand years ago or two thousand years. Ago. What did they think? What did they do? They they must have been like like me, going through their life. I don't know. It's strange. You know, you touched on something that is kind of cool. Uh, the the early geologists, they began to get a grasp of 
just how old the planet was by looking at the old Roman roads in Great Britain and seeing how comparatively untouched they were compared to, uh, say, sedimentary rocks that took, must have been deposited in the ocean and then had rocks piled up on top of it. And so they thought, well, gosh, if the Roman roads weren't affected for a thousand years, then uh, things must be pretty old out there. And they began to grasp the, the uh, immensity of deep time. It takes those kinds of you know, things to really understand. You start with things you know, like old Roman roads, and you, you realize, wow, that is really young compared to what we're talking about geologically. So when you want to talk about the beginning, you know, you want to talk about the size of the universe and the Big Bang and the beginnings of general relativity, and you want to explain that to somebody that really has never thought about it for the first time, how do you do that in your book? Well, the, the concept of the Big Bang gets a lot of people upset. And so I'm very careful in my class to make sure that I include people in the discussion by saying, look, if you disagree with this, tell me so. Let me know your opinions. We'll talk about it. Because when you say the Big Bang, you know, they say, well, you must, must have a God, and then it gets into the whole issue of God. And I'm not arguing here uh, for or against the God. I'm simply saying that there's an immense amount of information that suggests there, there was a Big Bang, and that that Big Bang occurred, and, and we can date it now. We live, we live in a time, uh, Chris, where, where we can actually understand our history. We've never lived, humans have never lived in a time where we can understand all of this. If you'd gone to write a book like this even 50 years ago or 40 years ago, you couldn't do it because we were just lacking so much information. But now we know the universe is 13.8 billion years old. And everybody goes, well, well, how can you possibly know something like that? And, and it, it all starts out, and some of the things we're going to talk about, there have been at least I can count three Nobel, well, I'd say more like four Nobel Prizes awarded to people that have, have discovered things that l led to our understanding of the Big Bang. So how do we know that the Big Bang started? And what's the best, best evidence for that? Well, there's, there's several. I don't, I don't want to get into too much detail here unless you want to know more. But uh, we discovered in the 1920s, I say we, uh, Hubble did, Hubble discovered that the stars and galaxies, he didn't even know they were galaxies. He thought our universe was it with all the stars in it. It, it, it took a while for him to grasp that there were galaxies just like ours out there. He realized that they were all moving away from us. And we can do, we can do that by the Doppler effect. I can get into that if you want, but it's not really pertinent to what we're discussing. But the Doppler effect tells us not only uh, how uh, fast something is moving away, uh, but also gives us an idea uh, of, the, of the speed at which it is moving away. So we can take these 
we can measure these distant objects and then we see that the objects closest to us are moving away slower from us than the distances farther away. And so Hubble realized that our universe was expanding. And it, it's more complicated than that. But then uh, a Catholic priest uh, said, well, look, if everything's moving away from us, then it must have all been together at one time uh, in, in uh, something that later was referred to as the Big Bang, mostly in jest, but it, it took hold. Uh, Hoyle was making fun of the Big Bang on a BBC television broadcast sometime in the 1950s uh, because he didn't believe in it. But, of course, now we, we have ample evidence that it occurred. So it's, it's not a beginning in the sense that we think of beginnings. It's only a singularity when, with regard to our universe. Our, our universe may be just one component in a multiverse of universes. And that in itself is a fascinating aspect, but gets us away from, you know, the kind of the hard facts. Wasn't it Einstein that said something to the effect of religion without science is lame and science without religion is useless or something? I, I mean, I just, I, I struggle when I think about how many minutes of disclaimers nowadays you probably have to use at your university classes before you start diving into the science of what it is that you're talking about, you said earlier. You know, I mean, this is, this is what science has presented us through the scientific method, which, you know, you learn about in fifth grade. And it, it bothers me to think that you have to qualify that for more than five minutes before you present it to your classes nowadays. You know, that, that's an interesting point, Chris. I think actually uh, the university, our, our students are, are pretty open uh, to alternate points of view when it comes to science where where I find uh, and I'll take a shot at, at the radical left here just as an aside I think where, where the problems go is you're really confined in what you can say if it's, if it's something um, that goes against the radical left. The, the right um, they're almost uh, kind of beaten up in, in our, our classes. I'm an atheist, but I still, I hate to see uh, Christians uh, feel like they, they've kind of been disenfranchised from the university systems. Sure. And I sometimes feel that way, that they are. So I'm always very, or try to be very courteous to uh, students that, you know, that disagree with me and give them a chance to express their points of view. And you probably get more embrace from them by doing that as well, too, To when you think about it that way, right? Yeah, my students, I got to tell you, uh, after 40-some years of teaching, my students have always, I've rarely run into a student that wasn't uh, respectful. Uh, you know, they may have disagreed with me, but certainly always respectful. And I've always appreciated that. At least they listened. They, they may have disagreed, but they listened. So when you talk about a singularity a couple of minutes ago, and essentially, you know, we're discussing the origins of the Big Bang. I mean, how would you describe a singularity? You know, it's an infinitely dense point. My listeners are going to want to say, 
what the hell is that and what was there before then? Well, it's an outstanding question, and I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. Uh, it's uh, If I can say it uh, in a kind of a, a weird way, the, the, the equations go ballistic when you try to take them back far enough. Like, I think at 10 to the minus 43rd of a second before, before the, that point after the Big Bang, time appears to cease to exist uh the Planck constant goes to infinity so it's weird kind of stuff like that and and so what what do you i don't know what the Planck constant going to infinity means uh i've yet to meet any astrophysicist that does so so when the equations start going loopy like that people generally call it a singularity now there has been some work and i'm i'm really on on uh, weak ground here in my knowledge, but it does seem like there's been some talk about uh, multi dimensions um, that may have existed prior to the Big Bang, and there even even been some work uh, suggesting that this or that may have happened. I've even heard as much as ten or eleven uh, dimensions uh, that have come out of string theory. But uh, I really can't talk much more about that than than that, Chris, because uh, that's why we call it a singularity. You, you really just can't go back much beyond that. Um, time may have ceased to exist even. Uh, now, there's been a lot of, of talk about uh, our universe being, you know, maybe a, a bubble on a, uh, off of another universe. And we may be having an infinite number of universes popping up as bubbles off of another uh, of uh, universes that existed before. But it's crazy stuff, huh? Yeah. Do you think once we start to kind of understand the quantum physics world, the subatomic, you know, the sub-sub-subatomic, uh, all of the things that we're working on understanding that are... Uh, in essence, too too small, too minuscule for us to wrap our heads around. I mean, small is such a stupid word to use when you're talking about something subatomic. But you you think when when we dive further and we make further advancements in you know subatomic and in quantum physics, that those uh, earliest seconds or you know tens of trillionths of seconds or whatever they are could wind up making more sense, you know, the Planck's constant going to infinity, that we may be able to unwind that? Or do you think it's, do you think that's just it? Do you think we've reached some kind of impasse there that, you know, science has pretty much taken us as far back as we can go? Well, quantum mechanics is, uh, is weird as heck, as you already know. Uh, and I don't, I wouldn't put anything past humans. They're, they're, they're pretty good at understanding. The problem that I think the scientists are running into is that we can't get the kinds of temperatures and pressures that existed in the big, within the Big Bang to adequately study uh, what's happening. Uh, CERN, you may have heard about CERN. They discovered sure. the Higgs boson there and all that. Uh, they, you know, they can just barely... You know, get up to the kinds of things that that we need to know. There, there. For example, there are four forces, 
and and we think that at least we know of four forces and we think they were all one force in the big bang at the tremendous pressures and temperatures that existed and then uh as they we had strong weak uh the electro um magnetic and gravity and so as the universe began to cool off from the big bang only in, in you know in terms of microseconds did this start to happen it cooled off pretty quickly because space time was expanding that's what relativity tells us and that so the big bang was the beginning of the expansion of space time everybody thinks it's like a bomb that went off it's not it's uh, really the beginning of the expansion of space time and during that period of time, while it's expanding, the universe is cooling off from the infinite energy uh, that existed in that singularity. And as it cools off, then, you go through these phase changes where the forces start to uh, come out and uh, form. So we, we had something called the electroweak force, which is the combination of the weak force and electromagnetic force and we know that when when the the there was a phase change and of course when these forces came out separated into individual forces they generated a lot of energy from the phase change so you get this immense energy being generated which led to inflation and uh, i don't know if you're familiar with inflation but this was a a rapid, incredibly fast expansion of our universe. We probably went to, uh, you know, the the size of, of our universe in, in a matter of, of microseconds uh, to give you some idea of how big we are. And, that, and that's where we get into all this stuff about dark energy and dark matter and things we don't know about uh, per se. But... Uh, that that inflationary period was crucial uh, for us to uh, here on life on Earth to form because it allowed uh, mass and energy to separate. Uh, I, I I know maybe this is kind of confusing. I can get into more details. No, I mean that sounds like specific. the time really where the rubber meets the road for the universe. Exactly. To expand, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and it's actually it's not that. You know, the the Big Bang as it's described, and I've seen uh, enough visuals of it, and I've uh, paid some attention, and I've listened to enough lectures stoned to understand <laughs> some of the... Uh, but the concept of everything all being in one place, and then the universe expanding, leading to, like you're saying, the, the separation of these forces... And the you know very quick cooling of things. I mean that just makes that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of you know real world examples that you could kind of simulate uh, to kind of create you know that, that just if you just visualize it in your head, everything starting in one area and then all of a sudden expanding outwards and then you know kind of m everything kind of moving exponentially with that. It 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 doesn't it's not terribly difficult to visualize from a very rudimentary standpoint. So the idea of inflation you know obviously i can't get into the weeds on the, all of the forces of nature and uh mm -hmm. you know what the early universe looked like versus now but when you think of the idea of inflation it's really it feels like that point where the rubber meets the road in terms of the universe expanding is that a fair way to describe it it's an excellent way uh you articulated extremely well i know why you have a podcast now 
the uh, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> the the idea is that you you also have leftover energy from this. It was predicted by George Gamow way back in the 30s or 40, I guess in the 40s. He predicted that there must be some leftover energy out there. And then um, in the uh, in the 1950s, they discovered that cosmic re- uh, cosmic background radiation, uh, and and it you know it's pretty much everywhere uh, out in space. If you ever remember televisions with snow on them, I guess most of the audience is probably too young to remember a television which had snow on it, but. That snow, I think 10% of the snow was caused by the the cosmic background radiation on the old televisions. So it's everywhere. It permeates space. And it's now at a temperature of around 2.72 degrees Kelvin. So that's that's close to absolute zero. I think think zero degrees Kelvin is a minus 273 centigrade. I hope I haven't forgotten that number correctly. But anyway... Something like that. So two, so zero degrees Kelvin, which is theoretically impossible to get at, is a pre-cold. Uh, it's when, in theory, electrons uh, would stop and protons and, and neutrons would stop vibrating. So you got some cool things going on there. At, we can get pretty close, though, into decimals of, of close to, to absolute zero, but never never zero so, when so you, when the you, background radiation. when you freeze something in your freezer sorry i gotta ask you like right. a bill nye the science guy question now when you freeze an ice cube in your freezer essentially what you're doing is you're slowing the movement of uh electrons right is that what's happening when you freeze something Correct. right absolutely and so kelvin just shuts them down completely minus completely. two kelvins which is impossible to do so when you get down to zero kelvin you would, in theory, have everything stopped in motion. And so imagine that you're just 2.72 degrees warmer than absolute zero. Uh, you know at zero degrees centigrade is when ice freezes. So, you know, you're talking uh, some 273 degrees colder. Can we simulate that? Um Simulate what? The background radiation? No, simulate that temperature. Yes. we. Uh, I find that c- kind of research really interesting. They, um, they've gotten down to point, I don't know, point zero something degrees Kelvin. I mean, it, and things start behaving really weirdly at those temperatures. Uh, you get uh, super kinds of... Um, what do you call it when electrons flow? Uh, you, you get. <laughs> You're asking me. Yeah, well, I'm just talking about uh, <laughs> flowing along wires, uh, conducting. Conducting. You get. I was about to say that. At at um, maybe I'm getting old, but I, I seem to always forget some words now and then. But anyway, yes, uh, they conduct at superconduction at cold temperatures when you get really far down like that. So. So some really weird things happen, and that's, of course, when things uh, uh, start to happen that get into the world of quantum mechanics. Talk about dark matter. I mean, you just mentioned it when we were talking about inflation. That's something that 
I know that we don't know a ton about, which is what makes it an interesting talking point. Maybe try and explain that a little bit to my listeners. Yes, it's uh, really one of the great mysteries. Uh, if you want to win the Nobel Prize, uh, figure out what dark matter is. Uh, dark matter, nobody had any idea that uh, dark matter was out there. Uh, just to, I, I don't know, give you some idea, uh, it's believed right now that 22% of space consists of dark matter. So just imagine 22% of our, of our universe consists of something we have no idea. Well, we do have a little bit of an idea, probably what it is, but nobody knows for sure. And then, and then 74% of it is made up of, of dark energy. So we only know uh, about 4% of what, the, what our universe is made up of, which is the stuff that we're made out of, atoms and protons and neutrons, that kind of thing. So, so this whole, whole dark matter, the big question comes, well, how, how did they discover it? Well, they started, uh, just for yucks, they started looking at uh, galaxies and how the mass uh, rotated around galaxies, orbited around the center of galaxies. Uh, I, I think most people know this, that the center of most galaxies probably have a black hole in them. Our, our galaxy does. Milky Way has a black hole in its center. So black holes are intensely... Uh, have intense gravitational pull. And so when you put all this mass of stars that are in that, that are going into that black hole and being sucked into that black hole, there's a tremendous gravitational pull at the center of the galaxy. Now, think about it. If you look at the planets, and you know this is something that Kepler realized a long time ago, is that the closer you are to the sun, the faster you have to go to keep from being pulled into the sun by the gravitational pull. So, so we know now that, of course, as you move farther and farther away from the sun, the orbital velocity slows down. And we would expect that to be true in galaxies where there's this massive amount of gravitational pull towards the center of the galaxy. So you would expect that uh, material... Uh, stars and gal uh, and ga well i didn't mean galaxies but stars and uh the gases that that go around the center of the galaxies uh would be traveling fastest towards the center of the galaxy and as you moved outward where we are things would be moving uh much more slowly and it turns out that's not the case and there there are only two explanations for it either the uh, general equations of general relativity and gravity are all wrong. Newton got it wrong. Einstein got it wrong. Or there's matter that is uh, dispersed throughout our galaxy, which makes all the planets go about the same speed. But we, we not only have evidence from the speed at which the, the material that goes around the galaxies, the evidence of dark matter, uh, but also there's this... Um, well, I don't know if you're aware of this, but when Einstein discovered general relativity, uh, Eddington, uh, another scientist, realized that one way that we could test it was Einstein said that 
uh, mass would, uh, the gravita large gravitational masses would actually pull light towards them. So, so we can test that by looking at a star uh, close to, say, the, the, the sun, and then when uh, there's an ellipse and the sun's covered up, we can see where the starlight is, um, where that star is relative to the sun because the starlight's going close to the sun, and then measure it where it is when it, when the sun isn't affecting the light. And sure enough, it turns out that there is a gravitational pull and light is infected, and that's called gravitational lensing. And when we look out in space, we see things that are gravitationally lensed, but they're they're affected more by whatever's out there than we can see. So that's more evidence. You have more more of a gravitational lens effect uh, by by uh, objects in space than we would expect by the size of those objects. So we know there must be something more out there than just the visible. Uh, matter that we see. So it's really incredible. Only 4% of our universe, we know what it is. Do you think that when I think about exactly what you just said, and I think I go back to my, you know, non-scientist brain and my visualization of the Big Bang, and you think there's a simple explanation for dark matter that we're going to stumble upon? Do you think it's going to be one of those things when we figure it out, where it's going to kind of plug into our model somehow and we're going to be like ah you know of course or do you think it's going to be something completely foreign that's going to rewrite science textbooks as we know it and rewrite everything that we've you know everything that we know about physics and quantum mechanics and, and astronomy and everything thus far well if it's that way we'll have to put a, a lot of physicists on suicide watch uh, because the standard model has been when they discovered the Higgs boson, it it really showed us that the standard model of of physics is is oh, I, I hate to always use the word right right, right yeah, but it, no. it's but it's it plugs right in really right? substantiated. But of course, there's always the possibility that dark matter could could turn out to be so weird that the standard model, I guess, would be wrong. But I think there's a I think there's an explanation out there that most physicists would subscribe to, and uh, that's um, what they call uh, weakly interacting massive um, particles. They call them WIMPs, and uh, the the idea is is that you you have some particles out there that are impossible to detect on Earth, uh, not impossible, but are hard to detect. And as a consequence, because they have no charge, they don't behave the, ray, the way regular matter does, that they've, they've been hiding from us all along. So there are now uh, huge studies and research projects going on to try to discover what dark matter is. And I haven't, honestly, I haven't read anything probably in the last couple of years on uh, the research on dark matter. But I know that they have some of the old gold mines. Uh, I think even at, even one in the United States in North Dakota, they've put these big baths uh, of liquid that would be sensitive to detection of anything passing through uh, 
the Earth, they have to cut out all the other things like radiation so that they can only measure these weakly interacting massive particles um, that come through. Others have postulated some cold, dark matter that we don't that we can't see, but they're out there trying to detect it. It's uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you know any day now we we had somebody announcing the discovery of dark matter. The Higgs boson was kind of like it fit into the standard model so well that we already had its place kind of set aside for it in the standard model, right? We we kind of knew it was there before we found it, and we just needed to find it to kind of circle that square, right? Right, and and this is the great thing about science, and, and this is how I always tell my students how science differs from any other uh, thing that takes place on Earth. We can always have our opinions about something, like if you... If you're if you're in English and you think that William Shakespeare was the best writer in the world, well, that that's your opinion, you know. But there's nothing uh, to say that he is the best writer. We can all get together and agree on some rules that would make him, you know, certainly a, a considered a great writer by most of us. But there's no absolute way to 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 know that. Now, I want to clarify. There's also no absolute way to know anything in science either because we could all be living, you know, in a, in a a matrix, so to speak. But there, one of the things that we can be really confident about with science is this idea that we can predict things and we do so all the time. And then, and then they're either turn out to be correct or they turn out to be wrong. And we go back and we rework the models and see, how we can explain it better. And in the case of um, of some of this stuff, uh, what, what did you just mention? The Higgs you were talk- boson. We were talking it. about the Higgs boson. Right, the Higgs. That was uh, that was predicted by Higgs in the in the 1960s. He, he won the Nobel Prize. Uh, he and an, an, um, I can't think of the other guy's name. Uh, they won Nobel Prizes for the, the fact that they postulated the existence of the Higgs. And you can go to Go, go to w- Wikipedia sometime and, and look up um, the particles in standard model, and you you can see they had a place there. Right. And not only did they have a place there, but they had accurately measured uh, the the uh, mass of of that particular particle. And it, the Higgs boson is one of these things. And let me see if I can uh, give you the definition properly. I, I believe that. Uh, it explains the way that uh, matter interacts with the Higgs field uh, to give it the properties that it has. So it also predicted that or substantiated this idea of the Higgs field out there. I told you about uh, uh, phases breaking during the, uh, the Big Bang. Well, the Higgs field had a phase change without getting into too much complexity here, that phase change generated immense amount of energy, which led to the, it's believed anyway, led to the inflation of the universe. So it, it really, really exciting stuff. I, I hope I'm still alive when they discover what dark matter and, and dark energy 
Well, you gotta you gotta think. The longer we work on it, the quicker we're probably accelerating towards a, a, an answer. What is what's right now? If I wanted to go to the the fringe of astrophysics and wanted to group together a hundred astrophysicists and ask them what the leading theory is for you know explaining the known universe would it be string theory or would it be something different i i used to think it was string theory and then i think i was talking to somebody that knows more about this than i do over the last year or so and they said well scientists are kind of starting to move away from string theory into multiverse theory or this bubble theory that you talked about earlier you know do you do you know what's kind of leading the charge at this point? Uh, no, to be honest with you, I don't. Uh, and that that would be a great question for astrophysicists, but I'm not sure that one eliminates the other. It's like you can still work on string sure. theory and and believe in a in a multiverse. Uh, in in fact, if we have some time, maybe we could talk about a multiverse because it's kind of. It's kind of one of those things that's so weird that that it's exciting, but I don't mean to be vague. I'm just afraid to tell you uh, what's on the cutting edge because I'm not an astrophysicist. I I don't work in that on that edge, so to speak. So I honestly don't know, Chris. I think that string theory. I thought that string theory was still going strong, but maybe I'm wrong. No, you're just you're staying in your lane. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, Good way to put it. Right, right. Um, Mark, I'm just getting a little. Are you moving around a little bit? I'm getting just a tiny bit of feedback. Oh, sorry about that. Okay. Uh, yeah, I tend to start waving my arms when I get excited about all this stuff. So. Or are you like? I'll maybe try to be careful. Breathing into the microphone a little bit more than you were before. I don't know. Maybe um, if you could just move the mic back, maybe just a little bit more than. Uh, little bit oh, just over the last couple How's minutes that? I feel that sounds fantastic okay. that, that sounds beautiful yeah, um, holler at me if it starts to get bad again I will I and I understand too because I'm the same way I pace when I'm on the phone and I you know I breathe heavily when I talk about something that I'm impassioned about obviously uh, if you want to let's take that dive right into the multiverse right now if you want to I mean what do you find oh, okay. so, what do you find so fascinating about it well, first of all, I have to tell you that, that I'm Italian, so, you know, I have to wave my hands. That's probably why you're here. <laughs> it's all right. My buddy, Russ, um, my buddy Russ Valenti will understand that if he's listening. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I, uh, I thought this was one of the most fascinating aspects of my whole book uh, is that, you know, I talked to you about inflation and, I, and we talked a little bit about uh, the visible uh, or the observable universe being 93 billion light years across. And now picture the fact that in order to get our universe the way it is now, inflation stopped. We came off of the Mexican hat of, of, of energy and we fell into a lower energy state, which stopped the massive, fast expansion of the universe, at least in our realm of the universe. But there's nothing to say that the rest uh, of the uh, universe didn't keep on expanding. 
that's the really or I should say not expanding but inflating we are still expanding but we're not just going we're not going through inflation so imagine that our universe uh, or, or at least a, a great deal of our universe formed in a in you know just a matter of microseconds uh, inflated to this amazing size but stopped inflating and if it hadn't stopped inflating all of the mass that existed in the universe, we wouldn't be able to see anything in our universe today, even if we could exist. But that's another whole story. The, the, the thing I want to focus on is that now our universe is isolated kind of in this, on this island inside this inflating universe. And the, and the weird thing is there might have might be other areas of the original inflating universe that might have stopped inflating also, and they would be islands with different, potentially anyway, different physical uh, parameters to it than our universe. And in between is still this inflating universe between us and all those all those other universes. And so that's one aspect of the multiverse. So we could have universes just like ours, you know, where they're just um, so large you can, can hardly think about them. And then you you have us so isolated because we're in between the inflating use, which is inflating so fast it's beyond our, it's just beyond our, our abilities to comprehend it. So all these island universes are completely separated from us. Wormholes can't get there. Warp speed can't get us there. None of that could, could uh, in nothing theoretical could ever get us to one of those kinds of universes. So we are really isolated in in that sense potentially if there is a multiverse. And that would lead kind of cool, huh? To think about it is. It's mind boggling. It's when it's really to me. I mean, it's unfathomable if there are multiple universes in the sense that you speak about them, that somebody isn't, you know, hundreds of billions of years ahead of where we are. Also, in terms of our understanding of science and technology, and, you know, that's why I found it interesting the last time that you were on to talk about your idea that you think that we're alone in the universe. And, you know, I just, I don't know, it seems like, with so many infinite possibilities over such a broad tranch of space, whatever you want to call it, uh, over what is essentially an infinite amount of time and all of these kind of indescribables, the things that are too big for us to understand and the things that are too small for us to understand and how they asymptote in, you know, opposite directions that there isn't something out there that hasn't figured out hundreds of billions of times more than we have. Uh, yeah, let me let me just make sure that you understand. I my talk on uh, the unit the the galaxy. I was talking about the galaxy when I said that I thought that that there might be a chance there's no intelligent life in our galaxy. Ah, I, I okay. w did not mean the, the universe. I think when you're talking about the universe and, and you know, the mention of infinity, I mean, my gosh, um, who, who would ever know? But, yeah, it seems, it seems infinitely, uh, infinitely possible that there is 
intelligent life out there. It seems like what almost, I would say is that it seems like almost everything that we could possibly conceive as humans, everything that our that we have the brain horsepower to conceive of being uh, of potentially existing could possibly exist. Absolutely. Uh, and you can't get me to disagree with that. I mean, that that's just my, my son's working on his PhD in math. And we, from time to time, talk about infinities and different sizes of infinities and, you know, just interesting stuff like, or at least it's interesting to me. So when you're talking about infinity, infinity, you're, you're talking about likelihoods that we can't even grasp. And, and I, I would also say that there, heck, there may be life in our solar system. Europa looks like it has an ocean, which could uh, support life. Certainly Mars, uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Mars had life on it at one time. Uh, so uh, I probably of the single cell variety, but yeah. who knows? And they're certainly interested in finding out. They're going to send up a, uh, I think, um, didn't I just read where, where they're going to send up a, a lander to collect samples? And then send up another uh, ship to collect those samples once they're collected. I don't know if that makes sense, but anyway. Yeah, I didn't see that. But to me, it's just it's it's absolutely mind-boggling to think that the the most bizarre situation that we can conceive of the smartest human being that's ever lived, the most bizarre situation that their human mind can conceive of, whatever you know, a Chilean sea bass playing doubles tennis with a root beer float on the, you know, uh, 10,000 miles under the sea that even that over, you know, when you're talking about something like infinity is just, well, that, that could just be peanuts, you know, like, because it's, it's bound by the limits of what we can conceive. That's right. And another thing that I should add to that, because this is a fun subject to talk about, and that is that because the universe is so big, like I think I did a calculation one time that if you could travel pretty fast from Alpha Centauri, which is a, a nearby star, I think it's either it's Alpha Centauri or one of the stars in the Alpha Centauri system that is the closest star to us. If you did that uh, and you started out at the time of Moses and traveled, you know, pretty fast at some interval of the speed of light, you would just now be arriving here. Right. <laughs> so, and, and that's the closest star. I think that's about four light years away. So to get it, to get a, it kind of gives you an idea of how big the universe is. And that's, that's the other reason why even, even if there is intelligent life out there, it seems unlikely that we'll be able to contact it. Heck, I'd love to see it happen. It'd be wonderful. The, but uh, it, it just seems unlikely. Bob Lazar, I don't know if you're familiar with his uh, his story or his alleged story. He he always said that the the advanced technological stuff that we found was from Zeta Reticuli. And I always... 
I had no clue where that is in relative to what, you know, Alpha Centauri, how far away or how close to it. Do you know where that is or no? No, I don't. Uh, I assume we're talking about a star or is it a galaxy? I think it's a system. I, I'm not sure what it is. I, I you know, we're oh, just okay. kind of going off on a, you know who Bob Lazar is, right? The guy who claimed to work at Area 51. You know that whole story or no? I do. A little bit of it. Uh, I didn't know that that's the star he was pointing to or the object. Yeah, well, that's where he claims the uh, technology that we found is from. Um, and, of course, you know, all alleged, nothing proven, of course. Uh, as a matter yeah, of fact, it'd be interesting how he figured out it was from there. Anyway. Apparently, he was briefed on it. I read his book. I'd be interested in, I'd be interested in you doing a deep dive on all of Lazar's claims and piecing together everything that you could. And as a skeptic, this is why, because he's making extraordinarily bold claims with de minimis evidence, but for his ability to uh, orate very calmly and, and relaxed. And he, you know, he's passed the lie detector test and, um, I've studied it over the last like 10, 15 years before he even got big and was on Joe Rogan. He was on, he used to be on Art Bell coast to coast all the time. And Uh I used to listen to his interviews and I read his book. I ordered his book and read his book and I watched the documentary and he was on, you know, I think maybe a year or two after you guys were all on doing your debate together on Rogan. And uh, that's, that's a story that I would be interested in hearing your debunking of as a skeptic if you ever feel like diving into something that i'd be interested in comparing notes with you on that one because that that is a bold bold set of claims by uh bob that is seemingly uh you know i like reading that kind of stuff though it's fun i do Um, i do too i like i like the idea of having to apply especially when a guy is telling the same story over and over again for 20, 30 years trying to apply some deductive reasoning to figure out exactly where we're being misled if we are. You know, not to change the subject, but I got a lot of criticism on the uh, uh, on the TED Talk that I did, and I uh, one of the reasons that I, and I think, like, legitimately that people were upset over the talk. I don't know if they were upset. They just uh, disagreed with it. And that is that I had suggested that the way humans got here was probably not, uh, or probably uh, the way most intellectual life comes about on other planets. And I, everybody said that's that's crazy. And, you know, I... I have done a lot of thinking about this just even before I gave the TED talk, but it just seems to me that there are only so many ways that life can evolve uh, intelligently. And we of course only know of one way. So I'm not, I'm not so arrogant as to say that that's the only way uh, because we don't know, but is it really a stretch to say that, that someday we'll go and we'll see what, what, what was the bar that they all went to in Star Wars? They met the, all the of cantina. the cantina. Yeah, the cantina where they met all the weird life forms. Yeah, yeah. You know, 
all life that comes out of the ocean, you know, it's probably not unreasonable to think that life came out of the ocean with, with four appendages, uh, you know, a fish or whatever. And that, you know, if you look at all the animal life, all of it has four appendages. There's some rare cases where they, they've evolved like whales. I don't know if they have four appendages. I don't think they do, but they lost their two legs. We have, we have, um, you know, they were on land. They evolved from land animals back into the ocean, so they're basically mammals. Uh, we have uh, fossils of whales without their hind le- with hind legs. So we know that they probably, through you know, not using them, evolutionarily speaking, uh, they lost those legs. So I, I think, I think the fact that we see this kind of similarity on land. I don't think it's that much of a stretch to say that we might find life, if there is intelligent life out there, to look a lot like us. Um, again, again, it might be weird as hell, but who knows? Yeah, well, especially the closer you stay to our system, right, the more that you would expect things to evolve similarly in a very rudimentary sense, right? You wouldn't expect intelligent life to evolve on Mars the same way that you would expect intelligent life to evolve in a different universe. Well, I don't, I don't know. And that's why I like talking to you about this. Let's think about that for a minute. You know, uh, there were probably oceans on Mars. Uh, uh, it might've been a billion, a couple billion years ago, but they, they seem to be there. Uh, there's some beautiful maps done, uh, geologic maps of Mars where the oceans existed take a look at them sometime if you get a chance but i would assume uh that you know the fish that existed in that ocean had fins of some sort to propel themselves around and if they came out on land like we believe that fish came out on land here on earth that that you know those appendages helped that those first uh, air-breathing animals like amphibians. Oh, they evolved in amphibians. Uh, and then inv- amphibians evolved into reptiles that, that they would have four appendages. So if you're going to say maybe you have a Martian, I, I wouldn't be shocked to see it with four four legs or four appendages. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean to sound crazy here. You know, I think all bets are off if life is silica-based. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but I've heard a lot of people say silica is just really too hard to get life out of. But who knows? What is silica-based life versus, I'm guessing, carbon-based life, right? Which is what we... Yeah. Carbon has uh, four, plus four uh, charge on it. So it can bind with four, uh, it typically binds in respect to other elements it bonds with four other elements typically so you you have one carbon it'll bind of four carbons you get a sheet called graphite if it forms in three dimensions with carbons and then you get a diamond uh diamond is all carbon same as graphite the only difference is that one formed in sheets and the other formed in a three-dimensional lattice structure Silica is very similar to carbon in that it forms in uh, uh, the four plus state forms with other elements. 
to form similar structures like carbon does. So people have said, ooh, you know, silica might be a, a way to have life form on other planets. So I study rocks, and, and most of them are made of silica. So I think of it as kind of a hard thing to make life out of, but who knows? Maybe, maybe life could form in a silica structure. But I'm, I'm skeptical on that one. So that's why I say, you know, if life starts out as silica, who knows what it's going to form into. And I mean, to what degree, Mark, do you think that other universes, I mean, I don't know much about multiverse theory and whether or not other universes play by the same rules of physics as our universe. But I mean, what do you think of the chances of in a you know multiverse theory life in a different universe looking profoundly different uh, than life would here in our solar system. Oh, okay. I see where you're going now. Uh, now, if we talk about one of those universes in the multiverse, all bets are off. Right. The, the, the constants, uh, the, the physics of those universes could be completely different than ours. The, the only problem is that I don't know how you're going to get across inflationary space to connect with us. Because remember, those universes come out of, there's this Mexican hat where they fall off of the, uh, of the inflationary universe into the, the lower energy levels and stabilize. But the rest of the universe keeps expanding at that inflationary rate. So now you've got uh, universe A and us over here, maybe as universe V, the, the two in theory could never communicate because not only do you have vast distances in each universe, but you've got this inflationary universe, which is essentially infinite for all intents and purposes because there's so much, it's, it's inflating to the size of our universe every few seconds. So the multiverse theory really is other universes kind of dropping out of ours and not multiple big bangs. Is that right? There, the term multiverse can be used in several ways. I'm just giving you uh, the way that it's been postulated by uh, Nobel Prize winner Schmidt. He, he was uh, one of the people that discovered that the universe is a uh, uh, accelerating in its expansion, uh, which is another whole interesting aspect. He w he won the Nobel Prize for that, and I've heard him talk about the multiverse, and I incorporated it into my my book. So, is there a, another uh, way to put this? Yeah, I think uh, some of the talk about bubble formations and everything you could consider that kind of the multiverse, I believe. So, how do we get from you know, inflation and the, it's funny because we talk about inflation on my show all the time. And it's a completely different kind of inflation. How do we, yeah, I was thinking that <laughs> I would confuse the shit out of some people. Definitely. But how do we get from, you know, inflation and really those early events that shaped the universe that we're in to, 
the Milky Way and the, you know the origins of really our solar system to try to zoom in a little bit here further. Well, first of all, I hope they're not using our discussions on inflation to invest, but you might be you might be interested in knowing that the term <laughs> inflation uh, comes from the inflation that occurred in 1979. That's when uh, Guth, Alan Guth, discovered or the equations told him that inflation was taking place. He was working with the equations from rel uh, relativity, general relativity, and he derived uh, – I don't know if it was a set of equations or one equation, which showed him that early in the history of our universe, that our universe inflated astronomically fast. So it's, I just thought... Just like our money supply. Your money system. Yeah, that's exactly why he called it inflation. Mm -hmm. Because if, we were going If our central bank inflation. could fill our entire universe with money, they would do it, trust me. And that's a di different, <laughs> different story for a different day. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, you were talking about how did the solar system and, and uh, the galaxies form out of that? Is that? What yeah. I mean, I guess what's the what's the logical way to kind of zoom in a little bit and get closer to, uh, you know, us locally in the universe? Yeah. Good question. When. When the universe began, quantum mechanics tells us that there would be ver small variations in how the energy and mass was dispersed in the early universe. In other words, it wasn't homogeneous. It was heterogeneous, slightly. And then when inflation occurred, it, it spread this background radiation out and we can actually look back and see what the dispersion of the matter was in the early universe by studying the background radiation which got George uh, Schmoot the Nobel Prize he, he was on uh, he was ahead of the Kobe satellite exploration and they discovered variations in the background radiation uh, which they call fluctuations. And those were the seeds of our current galaxies and, well, galaxies. But energy and mass separated during the early expansion of the universe, of space-time. And so we, we have this the variation in matter being stretched out but clumping where the matter is close together because of the gravitational pull. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. So you have these clumps of matter then throughout space. And by the way, if you look at maps of space now, which they've made some spectacular maps, it just looks like kind of like a, um, I, I want to say a spider web, but it's, it's even weirder than that. It kind, kind of like a lattice structure almost of, of mass. And each one of those galaxies kind of, even the galaxies are clumped together. And, and then we have this vasty voids of space in between the clumping of the matter. And that's, that, that's how our galaxy formed. It was formed from one of these clumping gases that uh, began to collapse and form stars. 
And then our solar system, uh, we call it the solar nebula. Our, our solar system collapsed from one of these clouds of mass. We see these stars forming all the time in nearby galaxies that were the result of very much like what happened to our sun. You have a solar nebula, which is just a gas cloud made up of hydrogen and helium with a little bit of heavy elements in it, and it collapses in to form a sun by the gravitational pull. And if it's slightly rotating, the models show that it will form a disc-shaped structure, much the way Saturn has and Jupiter even has a disc around it. So it's very typical if, if something is slightly rotating and it begins to collapse on itself, it also forms a disc. 99% of the matter and mass in our universe went to form the sun, but the rest of the mass formed this disc structure. And then as time went on, uh, little seeds within that disc uh, probably started clumping matter together and it formed the planets. Inter interesting is, I think, is the fact that we see this on Saturn. If you look at uh, the rings of Saturn, there'll be a, a, a moon of Saturn within those rings and it's picking up all of the nat matter nearby it and it's got an empty ring in its orbital path around Saturn. So we know this process pretty well, and you can model it through computers. And that's why the planets seem to be relatively evenly dispersed. You know, we're not that far apart. Uh, if you include the asteroid belt going all the way out to Jupiter, we're fairly evenly dispersed. So it's uh, the, the early solar system was just about an, an accretion of all this mass into planets. And then we know the, the planets all revolve around the sun in the same direction. That makes sense. That supports the idea of a solar system forming from this disk. We also, most of the planets, all of them but two, rotate uh, in the same direction that we orbit the planet. Uh, there are two exceptions, I think Venus and Uranus. They were hit by large, probably large massive objects which tilted their axes so that they they revolve uh, in an opposite direction of the way one would expect. Uh, so, so it all makes pretty good sense about how the solar system formed. And there, there were some huge solar winds in the early formation of the, of the solar system, which took the material, the lighter material, hydrogen and helium, and literally blew it out. It's not the kind of wind that you get, you know, when you're out on a windy day. It's a wind created from particles that are generated by the fusion going on in the sun. And these get ejected, they're protons and electrons and alpha particles, and they get ejected by the sun, and they blast through our solar system. And that, that solar wind carried hydrogen and helium uh, from the inner solar system, a lot of it, to the outer parts of the solar system, primarily... It hit a shock wave around uh, um, out past the Kuiper belt, but a lot of that material stopped in the vicinity of Jupiter. So that's one of the reasons it's believed why Jupiter is so large. And Jupiter is so large, it probably kept a planet from forming between Mars and Jupiter, which is now the asteroid belt. And we get all kinds of junk from the asteroid belt that are thrown into the inner and outer solar systems so that you know we always stand the chance of being hit by an asteroid there was a 
a large cratering period about beginning about three point well, four point one billion years ago and continued to about three point eight. This is from dating of the moon. That uh, the planets were just bombarded by these asteroids. And we probably see that because the planets had solidified by I think most of the, the terrestrial planets were were probably completely molten or at least partially molten uh, when they formed. But uh, as they cooled off, uh, these asteroids kept hitting and creating craters. The craters of the moon, for example, or if you look at Mercury, it has a lot of craters on it. And those are just leftover uh, cratering from the early uh, solar system. I remember when I was a kid and saw all those craters on the moon, I'm like, Lord, do we have to be worried about you know some large object hitting the Earth? Probably not. Although, you know, we will get hit by the by comets and things like that. I think we talked about it the last time on your show about uh, the comets that come into from the Kuiper Belt or the Oort cloud that surround. That's kind of the the leftover material from the solar nebula that once existed. Once I like, once I got my first taste of astrophysics. And once I got my first understanding of the universe, I don't know how old I was, you know, maybe in my late teens or whatever. Mm -hmm. I was constantly worried about that. The same exact way that you were talking about it is I would walk around on a day-to-day -day basis and be, as today the day that the thing that we don't, <laughs> we <get struck. laughs> that we don't see, right, is just going to come out of nowhere. And the way that I talked myself out of that was just by getting, and maybe you can tell me if this is crazy or not, is just by getting a better understanding of how vast time, uh, how, you know, really, how long the Earth has been here, how vast uh, the age of our planet is versus how exceptionally short a human lifespan is relative to that and thinking all right you know that it's more probability than not that i'm going to exist in a trench of whatever 60 70 years that where there's not going to be any major uh massive anomaly i mean is that you think that's fair to say yeah i think it's well said uh yes absolutely uh that that time component's very important you wouldn't want to have lived on earth as the dinosaurs found out 65 million years ago, and it was even worse prior to that. You had a lot more free objects flying through uh, the solar system. And, you know, in the past, we've had stars that have approached our solar system, which causes a gravitational pull on the objects out there, which then can send them flying through our solar system and create impacts uh, on the Earth or, or whatever. So we have had bombardments. Uh, but they're very, very rare. You can look at charts to see what the average of a certain size uh, object striking the Earth are, and they're pretty, you know, pretty rare. I found out just recently. I think that we can expect three supernovas in our galaxy every 100 years. I don't know where I read that. It just kind of stuck in my mind. That scares me a little bit. You know, if there's a supernova that occurs nearby, uh, we could we could definitely be wiped out here on Earth. What could what is a supernova, and what this could, is, could happen? Well, there are a lot of different types of supernovas. 
so they don't just form in one way. But the typical way a supernova is explained to most people is uh, these are type type three super and type two supernovas, I believe, where when an, a large star greater than eight solar masses starts to burn out its core, when I say burn out its core, it, I mean it's converted all of its or a lot of its hydrogen to helium. And so the energy begins to dissipate in the, in the uh, center of the star. So think of this. You've got this tremendous gravitational pull, which, which wants to crush the star. But you've got all these nuclear fusion reactions taking place in the center of the star that wants to blow it up. So there's this incredible equilibrium that's developed between the gravitational pull and the blowing up of the star. But once that hydrogen gets used up, that's the fuel that drives these big stars, our star too, the sun. And in the big stars, when they start to collapse, they start to fuse uh, helium into, I think it's carbon, and, and then uh, even, even you can start fusing uh, other elements up to iron. And you also then get neutron capture. But at some point, then, you have this rush of neutrinos out of the star. There's so many neutrinos. These are very small particles, but they, when they start rushing out of the star, and this is not completely understood yet, so some of this, uh, I'm kind of arm-waving here, but the, this rush of material out of the star causes the, the star to blow up, literally blow up, and... and um, that's called a supernova, and we we had one in 1987. It was in an in the nearby uh, uh, sort of I don't even know if it's considered a galaxy. It's the um, Magellanic cloud. I don't know how to say it. Anyway, uh, and that happened in 1987, but we haven't had one since. There was a one in our galaxy. The last time was. In the 1600s, it's known as Kepler's supernova. So I, I think we're due for some supernovas. And if they're far enough away, they'll be a lot of fun to watch. But if they're real close, it could be dangerous. So, they'll be less fun to watch. <laughs> less fun. <laughs> Only for a few minutes, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'll have the bottle of whiskey outside. I'll be ready yeah, to roll, you, you know, if you're thinking, this is great. I don't have to worry about what the stock market's going to do tomorrow. Maybe I'll finally get some fucking sleep. Well, I'll have you over if you've got a bottle of whiskey. We right. can die together here and drink. <laughs> now, I honestly don't know um, how deadly supernovas can be if if they're a certain distance away, and you know. So, I I don't I don't want anybody staying up tonight worrying about supernovae, uh, but uh, they they no telling what they can produce. So. What would the Earth look like today had something not wiped out the dinosaurs? Oh, wow. Well, you know my contention, uh, I think, and that is that I don't, I don't think we would have uh, mammals uh, evolve to the extent that we do. No, no, I could be terribly wrong. How could that? But as we... Right, uh, we had... We had um, Dinosaurs for what 125 million years, and and then uh, and mammals were pretty small. They had evolved while dinosaurs were here, but they were still scurrying around trying not to get stepped on. Right. And 
And um, uh, primates didn't start devolving, uh, I think, monkeys about 40 million years ago. Maybe it was 30. I'd have to look back at my notes. And I, the first, uh, first real primates uh, go back to somewhere around that time, too. So, you know, the, the meteorite struck in 60 or 66 million years ago. So, you know, I, I really think that we're here uh, partly due to that impact. I catch a lot of hell for saying that. but Why do you catch I hell? Well, I think the notion that uh, that we're a rare event uh, irritates people because they think that life is everywhere out there and intelligent life. And I, I, I was saying that, you know, our galaxy, it may be real hard to find some intelligent life. You know, before S Stephen Hawking died, I heard him on a show say that he didn't think there was any intelligent life within a uh, – I think he said a couple hundred thousand light years from us. So think about that. I mean, even if there was intelligent life a couple hundred thousand light years away, uh, the chances of us, unless somebody's come up with warp speed or warp drive, I don't think uh, there's any way for us to communicate. Well, that's it's not surprising to me that that is annoying to – a vast majority of people out there, A, because they probably want to believe, the, you know, movies, books, all these things. Sure. You know, it's sure. fun to believe. It's fun to think about this shit. It's fun to say, all right, well, you know, this happened, that happened. There's other life out there. And plus, I think, too, people have a very difficult time getting out of their ethnocentric bubbles of sorts where... Uh, it's just, it's very difficult. I, you know, probably eight out of 10 humans probably have significant difficulty removing themselves from the daily ins and outs of their lives, let alone conceiving the idea that, you know, there are or aren't other people, you know, conceiving the idea of the universe, conceiving the idea of the galaxy, of the solar system. I mean, you're trying to talk to somebody whose biggest decision is whether or not they're going to put fucking butter or cream cheese on their bagel in the morning. And that's like a huge consequential thing for them. I think it's natural for people and the way that we've society, you know, the way that societies evolved, the social mores of just being a human being in the year 2020, that it's likely difficult for people to understand that the universe doesn't revolve around them and what they're putting on their bagel in the morning. You know, it's, good point. Uh, we good need point. every once in a while we get these reminders from mother nature, like, like the coronavirus or, you know, like a category five hurricane mm -hmm. or whatever that, you know, but most of the time markets, people saying, yes, I'll live 30 feet from the beach in Miami because what the hell could happen? Right. Not, not <laughs> yeah. thinking that like on a planetary level, that might as well be a 10th of a trillionth of a, of a nanometer. Right. I mean, it's such a, right. it's, it would take somebody to just scratch their ass the wrong way in another dimension for, for the ocean to just swallow, you know, the entire continent, let alone their little beach cabana in, on, in Miami beach. Right. Sure. And, you know, you try not to offend people. Uh, I guess we're, we're trying too hard these days not to offend people. I, I think 
it's good to have people and their minds challenged. Uh, in fact, I, I kind of see my job as challenging uh, the students to, you know, to think about things uh, in, you know, that might go against the, the grain. But one of the, one of the things that might be fun is to get Lazar on your show and talk to him about some of this stuff. I'd love to talk to a guy like that. I find these people fascinating. You know, maybe they're onto something that we don't know about. So it's always good as a scientist, even though I tend to be skeptical. It's always good to keep an open mind too, right? Absolutely, and I agree with you 100%, and that's why I always found his story so fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, I've invited him, and I've reached out to the guy who, uh, I guess, brokers his appearances, who's this filmmaker, Jeremy Corbell, uh, who's the gentleman that appeared with him on the Rogan podcast, and I haven't heard anything back, and I don't suspect that I will. I just got the impression... I got the impression from their podcast, they say something in the very beginning, oh, me and you were discussing this last night when we went out, you know, that maybe the questions or the scope of what they talked about may have been, if not set in stone in advance, may have been discussed in advance. And it reminded me of those old televangelist preachers, you know, where you put your put your ailment down on a prayer card 10 minutes right. ago and then you're right. stunned when the guy figures out you got a bad hip and right. uh but joe i mean delivered that interview in a manner that i thought made it look relatively uh i'd be interested in your thoughts in the interview i mean there's one spot where he's pressed on a question where he stops and he's like oh i got a migraine you know it's tough for me to it's tough for me to come up with the answer here to something because my oh, head wow, hurts really? And I'm like, yeah. yeah, all right, you know. And I would just, I find those things fascinating too because until they're thoroughly debunked, I have, there's a nagging kind of, there's a nagging enticement that I get that I want to continue mm -hmm. to read further and I want to continue to mm -hmm. examine every possible thing that this guy has said every single place. So I would love to have him on because I know exactly what questions I would ask him. And to me, a lot of the credibility around his story, I've kind of come to the conclusion, and we can talk about this further once you familiarize yourself with it, but I I've come to the conclusion that he's probably telling the truth about some things, uh, about working at Los Alamos National Lab as a contractor, and maybe uh -huh. even working at this Area S4 that he claims that he worked at, but that there are other things that he's not telling the truth about. And... I think there's a there's a gray area between the truth and what he's kind of embellished, uh, and uh, you know the one the one big looming question with him was always his educational background. And he couldn't confirm that he went to MIT. He couldn't confirm to uh, that he went to Caltech as he had claimed. You know there was no mention of him in the yearbooks. He didn't have any transcripts. Oh, that's pretty serious. The universities couldn't confirm it. Yeah, and so when he wrote the book. Dreamland. I thought this is a really interesting time for him to stop, come up with a calculated explanation. You know, it's always kind of been like, well, they've tried to erase my past type thing. Stop, kind oh, of no. offer something up, right, in, in that realm uh, about his education that may, be, that may take that a little bit further for people. And he didn't do that in the book. And I just, uh, I don't know. I, you know, I think there's... I think there's probably a very low single-digit percentage chance that things went down exactly the way that he said, 
but I think his story mm-hmm. is likely an amalgam of some truths about some things and then a lot of embellishment. But we can't really get in the weeds about it because you're not you're not super familiar about it. Well, I'd I'd like to read further. I, you got me interested now. You know, I've I, I read Carl Sagan. Uh, uh, what was it called? Um, oh, he wrote a book that uh, kind of argued against aliens and kind of convinced me that there probably won't be seeing any aliens on the planet. But uh, you know, you, you hate to close yourself off too, so. Who knows? Well, and if you're like you are, if you have the intellectual torque to understand what we know and what we don't know, it's very difficult to close yourself off to it, you know, because Mm -hmm. you can't sew down every single possibility and every single variable, right? Absolutely. No question. So let's go from let's go from where we were, you know from really like the dinosaur age toward, uh, you know, really early primates and the beginnings of Homo sapiens uh, as we move forward, zooming in from the broader universe to uh, you at home drinking your beer and looking on your iPhone. Yeah, you, yeah you're really covering the whole uh, shebang here at the primates are fascinating to me i i think if there was another field i i could have really gotten interested in it would have been a paleoarchaeology or paleoanthropologist there have been I, I guess if we went back to the 1960s the amount of information that we didn't know is just startling there has been so much in this field that's happened that we now uh, with some certainty know that that we came from a from a creature that that was uh, linked to the chimpanzees that lived somewhere between five and seven million years ago. It's the most educated guess. And guess what? We're finding we're finding fossil evidence to support that. That number has kind of been thrown around by geneticists for a long time. Maybe you're familiar with Eve which is the, the supposedly a woman that w- was the mother of all all humans. It's not exactly the only mother. It just means that we can trace her genes back. And, and we can do the same thing for the genetic tree for any animal. So if you want to know when, uh, when chimpanzees and humans uh, separated, you can look at their uh, genes they're called genetic clocks. You can uh, determine that by uh, how much uh, you have in change in genetic code, assuming that uh, it changes on a, a systematic basis. You can use uh, genetics as, as a clock. So if you have a, a change in the gene pool, uh, uh, you can say, okay, that this happens this often, and therefore this uh, beginning when we were uh, had the same ancestors, chimpanzees occurred in such and such, and that date's generally thrown out around five to seven million years ago now, I think. And we're finding fossils uh, that fit that bill, uh, Homo erectus being the most obvious one. 
and and this is a bright creature, has a big brain, and and we're also seeing, of course, there's an animal out there called Australopithecus. Australopithecus came before Homo erectus, it looks like. And there are a lot of other uh, creatures that have been found throughout Africa, in particular in the western part, uh, excuse me, the eastern part of Africa, that uh, tell us that our ancestors probably came from that area and that our link also with chimpanzees was around the time of Australopithecus. And interestingly enough, Australopithecus has many characteristics of living both in a tree and on the ground walking upright. It was an upright walking creature, but it has some characteristics that allowed it to get up into trees um, very different than than us. We we look like we're the product of, of, of four or five million years of living on a savanna. Whereas you go back and look at Australopithecus, uh, you you would see uh, the characteristics that one might expect to find in an in an animal that lived not only on the savanna but also in, partly spent some time in trees. These all seem to fit uh, the scientific view right now about how we got here. And I wanted to say something that we mentioned earlier, but I didn't get a chance to elaborate on. If it, This is something I talk a lot about with my students. If you look at, at time, you know, when the first creature that we find out there, you know, is a one-celled creature. I, th I think the earliest fossils now date back to about 3.6 billion years ago. And we're not finding elephants 3.6 billion years ago. We're, we're finding single-cell creatures. And uh, there, there are different, different types. There's a bacteria, and then there's archaea, and, and then there's eukaryotes. Those are the three basic types, and they're very genetically different. And they've evolved into different life forms. Of course, eukaryotes have formed into the, most of the things that we're familiar with today. Uh, animal and plant cells and then we see uh, fish and sea creatures evolving and we don't see we don't see creatures coming out onto the land until the first uh, amphibians or so and then what happens amphibians are, are creatures that you know live both in water and on land and then we evolved uh, we see evolution of reptiles and then eventually reptiles evolve into um, dinosaurs and birds. Well, I consider I'd consider dinosaurs to be reptiles. A lot of people go crazy when I say that, so I'll I'll be careful here. But but I think you can see the progression and complexity here. You're starting out with uh, you're not starting out with with complex animals, elephants or something, you're starting out with simple organisms and you're evolving towards more complex earth. That isn't to say that humans are the end result of all this. It just means that we see in evolution what we would expect to see. Mammals being uh, the, the, the most uh, evolved, I would guess, is not too dangerous to say of, of when you compare it to reptiles and birds and so on, so on, in, in, in relative to intelligence. If you look at um, encephalization quotients, which are taking 
uh, the log of the of the mass of the brain compared to the mass of the body. Uh, mammals are in general superior to others. I shouldn't say superior, but have larger brains. You know, because birds are able to fly around and we can't. So it's not not necessarily anything that evolves is superior to anything else. If you get my drift, sure, yeah. evolution creates animals that are specifically perfect for the environment that they evolved into. And so it's hard to say one is superior to another one. When you talk That's about like, when you talk about going back as far as Homo erectus and uh, you just wonder like what the fuck did these guys do all day? I mean, it's so go, <laughs> well. Just going back to like our ethnocentric kind of thing before, right? Where no, you're your, right. Your it's average nasty. like bimbo gets up in the morning and they read their horoscope and they think that it means something and they go about their day and they drive their Ford car to you know their job where they mash a keyboard for few hours they get a martini they fake like they're enjoying themselves socially with some people they think are important and they go home and they do a crossword puzzle and they go to bed and you look at that and then you think about all right well three million years ago like what did a day look like was it basically just like get up you know basically like a dog you know 95 percent of the time you're looking for food and the rest of the time you're looking for either sex or you're taking a shit i mean right what else is going on? Yeah. <laughs> I think they were probably very interested in making it through the day, to be honest with you. I think I, I think a lot about how they lived. We can look at hunter-gatherers today and get some sense of the way they live, but I think I think for somebody like Australopithecus or Homo erectus, I think probably it was a pretty scary time. There weren't many of them, for one thing. They lived in small bands, and they're out on a savanna, which um, – I had the I had the uh, opportunity to uh, go in South Africa to one of their big uh, animal parks, and we took these jeeps out, and we got in and amongst lions in the middle of the night, at, you know, about ten o'clock at night, as dark as you can ever imagine. And I remember thinking, you know, here are these lions that the jeep drove in and amongst, and they're just they're just out there uh, looking for something to kill. I'd, I'd hate to be a water buffalo out there or something. Right. So I got to thinking, you know, what if, what if you were a, a homo erectus or something like that, and you had to go out during, during the day and fend off from creatures that were going to potentially eat you just to get food and try to survive? I, I can imagine that 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 was something that got your attention every morning when you woke up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was very different. There were no guns. There was no shelter in the way that we have yep. it now. There was no, yep. none of this shit. It was, you know. No escape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You had you, you had your two legs to carry you. Yeah. And you would. If you broke a bone, you were probably dead. Right, yeah. Oh, wow. Yep. Or if somebody like me who can't see, I had to wear glasses when I was younger until I had eye surgery. So I would have been probably a, a mouthful for somebody at a young age. Right. So so you're really left you're left to believe it's not so not such an easy life. I, I and and it's nice to see how progression of humans has taken place to where 
we're so far away from where we evolved, and yet we still have a lot, a lot of the same drives. And that's why I wanted some time to talk to you about uh, evolutionary psychology, because that gets into, you know, why we do certain things, why we're jealous, why we have anxiety, why we have anger, why we have emotions that uh, lead us to do things that, you know, we do for whatever reason, why we seek the opposite sex, or most of us do. So, uh, and, and even, uh, you know, even uh, getting into the same sex, we are beginning to understand that now more too. So it's a, it's a grand world to try to understand and complex. And I, I keep saying, boy, we're, we're, and you said it earlier, we're so far away from where we evolved uh, and we worry now and get stressed out about our jobs and, you know, our, the health of our children and so on. No wonder we're all stressed out. You know, we were supposed to look around for food during the day and try to keep from getting eaten by a lion. Now we got bosses yelling at us and you do this and do that. Yeah, the shock it's not to what we evolved to take. Right, exactly. And I talk about this all the time, and this is why I'm such a big advocate for people to go to therapy, uh, like cognitive yes. behavioral cognitive behavioral yes. therapy, because good it's, for you. It's one of the first things. It was really the first time in my life that I examined with any kind of rigor the exactly what we're talking about which is the difference between how we have evolved and evolutionary psychology as you're talking about it really right which is really this thread it's this thread that still you know that we still are born and die on that is you know a thread that's carrying us through time forward through time it's one of those you know arrows with a terminus at one end and an arrow that's pointing in one direction you know just going linear in one direction so this evolutionary psychology is happening underneath it all at these very Correct. core molecular biological yes. levels but meanwhile yes. all of the <laughs> right. fucking noise all of the right. noise that we've created for ourselves as we have evolved and come up with you know, I was watching Supermarket Sweep last night on Netflix, you know, like uh -huh. the, the idea of fucking idiots running around a television studio grabbing, <laughs> grabbing, you know, pasta sauce off of a wall to win $50. <laughs> like all of these asinine things that if you gave the deepest thinkers, you know, a million years ago, time to think about how fucking crazy things have gotten now, they would have never, ever been able to come up with it. So... There's such an enormous disconnect between what our biology tells us our day should look like in this kind of deep underlying thread versus, you know, getting up and having to worry about whether or not you have enough money to take your car for a fucking oil change. Like, I mean, that delta, and it's getting wider too, Mark, which is why people are getting more and more psychotic, I think. I mean, obviously, I don't know shit about this, but does that make sense to you? Oh, very much so. I think a lot of our present-day problems are due to the fact that we're we're stuck in environments that, uh, you know, we weren't meant to be in necessarily from an evolutionary standpoint. You're talking about money, you know. I mean, that if you'd have told a, 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 a creature like Homo erectus, uh, 
you know, that there was this thing, money, and they could have what they wanted with it, you know, they'd laugh at you probably. Yeah. So. And that's and now yeah. that's one of the most basic, extraordinarily basic social yes. constructs we have now. Yes. And so we've had to completely change our our way of living, yet we still have all of these things that kept, a, you know, if, I always wondered why in the heck do I get so stressed out because somebody said this thing to me or what did they mean by that? You know, and you, and you spend your life, a lot of your life going, you know, how do I react to that? That kind of stuff. And, and so when I learned about evolutionary psychology, I, I began to realize it didn't necessarily change me, but I began to realize that, you know, we, we are affected by the way people think of us because we had to live in these small groups where if you didn't get along with the people that you worked with, you found yourself out living alone uh, on your own. And that was un- undoubtedly certain death. So we all had to get along. And a lot of that we experience today. You know, it's not life and death, but sometimes we react to it. You know, if your boss gets mad at you and you you, you, know, you might spend a sleepless night thinking, am I going to be fired? Well, a part of that worry has to do with the fact that if that happened in hunter-gatherer society where the group decided you were an asshole, well, they boot you out. <laughs> so, you know, one of the big stresses on our lives is probably trying not to be an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for my language. But. No, no, we encourage uh, freedom of speech here on this show. You know, Good I'm you. okay with it. You're, uh, you know, you're the president of your university might not might not agree with uh, it. I'll get a call from the department chair tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> You're toast tomorrow, Devon. <laughs> is there is there anything else that you know dealing staying on the same topic of evolutionary psychology that you find fascinating uh, that you can kind of take a a look at how it would have affected our lives or the lives of something like Homo erectus versus how it affects our lives today. You just made a very good analog, right, in terms of social acceptance. I mean, what are some of the other kind of fascinating things that you find interesting that we can tie back to then? Let me just kind of entice you a little bit with some of this because I think – you're talking we could talk hours about this i i think that we go through life a lot of times behaving instinctually to things and we're not knowing and we we don't know why we're we're behaving in a specific way right and evolutionary psychology uh, explains a great deal of our behavior um i uh, to give you an example, if you've ever wondered uh, why there aren't uh, gangs of old geezers running around beating up people, why do only <laughs> young men do this? It's because your hormones have kicked in and you you have uh, you have a desire uh, to impress women and compete with other men. So there's this and we talked a little bit about this, I think, in the last show where where men uh, are very tend to be much more competitive than women. We tend to be uh, generally uh, competitive with other men to win the hearts of women. So some of that competition turns out uh, to be physical. So uh, if you've ever wondered why a guy 
gets a wrong look at a bar and then uh, starts to fight, uh, this all can be taken back to uh, our competition for women. Uh, those slights that uh, men perceive and have, have been uh, all, all the time, oh, that's toxic masculinity and that kind of nonsense. It's not. It's um, actual masculinity. You know, yeah, well, I'm not saying that men should go out and fight, right? Because if you're if you're bright, you don't have to compete at the physical level, right? Um, and, and probably people that are listening to the show are bright, so you've got you've got uh, a bunch of men now competing on an intellectual basis, and and women don't, you know, look at the women that are very successful in life. They don't choose men that are blue collar. Uh, they choose men that are. Uh, that are equal or above them in intellectual and professional abilities. Uh, I don't. I don't mean to badmouth blue collar people. I'm just saying that uh, women tend not to marry down, whereas men are less interested in how much money their wife makes than women are. Opposite way, and men are much interested in beauty. Well, well, beauty. Beauty is a. Is really a surrogate for health. So when we say a woman is beautiful, it's cross-cultural. We will all agree as to whom the most beautiful women are. And that's, that's kind of the stuff I'm talking about. So if you've ever wondered why you're attracted to beautiful women and why everybody else is, it's because you're being attracted to them because they have healthy genes. Now, I don't want anybody to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that if you're not beautiful, that you're, you know, a, a failure genetically. That's not my point. My point is, though, is that this has been, this has been, this is being overlooked because it goes against um, some of the, uh, how do I say it? Some of the opinions of of the radical left. And I hate to be, I hate to see science uh, discounted because it doesn't agree with a a certain politic. Well, there's and all I, kinds of facts that are being discounted by the radical left correct. that they're correct. just not paying attention to facts. And stunningly, then when you bring up facts like this physicist at Michigan State University that pointed out a study that was outrageous. done at his outrageous. own university by it was a Michigan State University physicist. Yep who pointed out a study by another Michigan State University professor that uh, made a strong fact-based argument against racial bias in police shootings. It wasn't just an, an ignoring of the facts. The gate swung in the other direction and people were demanding that he was fired and he stepped down from his position for doing nothing more than citing his own university's study on a topic that has been declared to be off limits if you're on the left and, yeah. and if you don't have their opinion, which is stunning. When you look at that in a vacuum and you look at that objectively, that is absolutely frightening. Well, I, uh, it gets me to pull my hair out because I, I'm one of these people that thinks we should be able to study and do research on anything we want to. And, you know, I'm not trying to side uh, 
with one side or the other. So to be fair, there, there are aspects of both the right and the left where they don't believe in science. I think like GMOs, there are a lot of people that don't believe in GMOs. I've had some students that have gone ballistic on me because I said that GMOs are safe. But all the evidence suggests that. So I don't, I don't really understand why we, uh, why we have all these hysterical people. I think, uh, Chris, what this comes down to, and I got to be careful what I say here, but what this comes down to is I think we have a lot of people. Well, not probably not to your listeners, but I have to be careful because of the situation in the universities today. But I think I think we have a lot of people both on the right and the left, but right now, particularly on the left, that seem insecure about people having a dissenting point of view. Right. And I say insecure because most confident people don't try to screen you down because you have a dissenting view. I think most confident people say, hey, let's talk about this. Maybe you've got something important to say. That's not what we're hearing on our college campuses today, we're saying we're hearing you can't say that, right? And that's when people like me start to say, "Whoa, wait! Uh, if you saying I can't say that, then I want to say it." Well, it's this whole idea that everybody has the right to feel comfortable all the time, and if you know, if we can't make everybody comfortable you know it's not it's not in human nature to be comfortable like we were just talking about right right homo we exactly. spent fucking 99 percent of their day trying to make sure that they weren't going to wind up dead at the end of it and if that was a success then they got a few hours of sleep and they woke up and they did the same fucking thing and like you know to if you were to suggest to uh the primitive man that somebody made you know whatever language they were using at the time uh, prehistoric grunting or whatever was going on that you know somebody somebody grunted in the wrong way you know but they didn't right. kill you that would be a huge success <laughs> and now we have yes. we've gotten so far off of we've just gone in the total wrong direction and it's a it's a fool's errand because the resources and the time and the energy and the slippery slope that we will go down in an effort to try to correct all what we perceive to be all wrongs and all discomforts. I mean, not only is it just a fallacy in general and just fucking dumb, but the time and resources, you know, we're, we're going to wind up just chasing our tail as a society and it's going to lead to even more civil unrest. I mean, it, it really is a fool's errand. And to just go oh, back yeah. to, to what you just said about, you know, when people start telling me what I can and can't say, that's where, and that's where that is the, you know, that's kind of where the fork is, right? When you look at Jordan Peterson, for example, right, who's become, you know, mm-hmm. a relatively well-known person and he's written a book oh, yeah. and, you know, people love him or they hate him. And, you know, right. what did he take his stand on at first was the issue of, what he could and could not say. He was being told by certain people that they wanted to be addressed in a certain way. And he said, that's fine, but you're not going to be able to tell me what I can and can't say. That's just my First Amendment right. And even before the argument of free speech from an evolutionary standpoint, it probably just doesn't make sense either. And so 
here we are, you know, where now you can be fired and, and you know, that it's just, it's gotten out of control, Mark. It's just gotten out of control. I'm glad to hear you say that you see it too, because from where I stand, um, over the last 40 years, I've never seen anything like I'm seeing today where these mobs can get on you and, you know, get petitions to have you fired for, um, you know, disagreeing with them. It's just, to me, it's just unbelievably scary. I mean, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm afraid for, uh, you know, just human rights in general. A group of people think that they're so right, that they're so morally correct, that they have the right to sequester everyone else. It's, it's astonishing to me. Well, I think the idea that you just brought up is something that I talk about all the time, and that's the issue. And I don't mean on my podcast. I mean personally with friends and you know, uh-huh. with, uh, in relationships that I've had. It's one of the things that I always bring up is the topic of security. And you have to be secure with yourself to a, you know, foundational degree in order to be able to put your best foot forward and have objective conversation and communication to try to, you know, deconstruct and find the solutions to problems. You have to, it's a very like baseline type thing. If you're secure with yourself, your entire life proceeds very differently than if you're insecure with yourself you ever worked for somebody that's insecure with themselves i mean it's a disaster you know they're unable to accept blame for their shortcomings they're often abusive they you know they're completely irrational and that is the same not only if they're your boss but also if they're your boyfriend you know they're calling you they're texting you they're they're lashing out they're constantly jealous they're constantly outraged it's so exceptionally un, you know carries into the work that you do it carries into the way that you interact with your community and with your family and just the issue of sorry just killing a fly there just the <laughs> just <laughs> the issue <laughs> of of security and and having a confidence and security with yourself like how do we get back to that how do we get people and I, and I hate to go on another diatribe here, but the idea of, you know, your recently with the with the argument about race and racial division in the country, the idea that you're racist, and if you if you if you stick up for yourself or you're secure with yourself, like I can sit here and I can tell you I'm not a racist person because I know myself, I know what my personal inventory looks like. If you're secure enough to do that, that automatically labels you as a racist. You can't say you're not a racist because you're so racist you don't know that you're racist. Um, and it's just like that. Yeah, like, that how, seems to be the monologue. How do today. we get back to being secure with ourselves, Mark? Well, I'll give you an example, uh, Chris. Maybe you can tell me what you think. I remember a time when the ACLU was so confident that they went out and supported uh, the Nazis in a march through a Jewish community, and they supported their right to go through that community. And I don't know anyone in the ACLU that was for the Nazis or supported anything that they believed in except their right to express themselves. And I thought that was one of the you know, greatest acts that an organization could do would be to, to, 
to believe in something uh, like uh, a right to, to free speech to support the people that you are obviously against. But now the ACLU is in support seemingly of many, many things, including the Dear Colleague letter by that was uh, uh, put in place by Obama, uh, which to me suggests that something's happened to the ACLU. Some people have gotten in there, and, and you, won't, you won't ever see the ACLU um, supporting the rights of uh, the Ku Klux Klan or Nazis to march uh, where they want to. And, and I, think, I think it's really important that we find out about people that have hatred because, you know, we may dislike them and we may not want to hear what they have to say, but I think it's important to hear them because if we don't hear what they have to say, they're going to go underground. And that's where it gets scary. You yeah. force them underground, then they can be doing things that you that you don't know about. Well, the the, the CL used to stand for civil liberties, right? And the right. idea was that you would right. protect people's civil liberties regardless of whether or not you agreed with them. And that's what you always hear, well, you don't hear often anymore, but uh, people that advocate for free speech often say that it's the speech that you disagree with that it's the exactly. most important to protect, <laughs> Right, exactly. Spe specifically for those reasons, um, nobody a... wants to. <laughs> nobody wants to support free speech that they agree with. I right, mean, I, uh, I can tell just by your laughing ground. just now that you're like you're enthralled to hear somebody say this. Yes, I mean, the insanity has gotten so great <laughs> that I didn't know there were people that thought the way you are. Have you ever watched? Uh, have you ever watched Louis Theroux? Any of his documentaries from the BBC? No, I'm sorry. I have, well, maybe I haven't. I just don't remember the name. I'm gonna send you a couple when we when we yeah, hang I'd appreciate up. That. He he okay. used to do a series called Weird Weekends, and he has done several documentary pieces on what are very kind of taboo subjects. For example, he did one on the Westboro Baptist Church. He did one, uh, you know, on other uh, on white supremacists that were living out in the middle of the country somewhere. He did one on, uh, you know, uh, the drug culture and the killings in Philadelphia. And in each documentary, he did one with guys that were gambling that, you know, would go to Vegas all the mm -hmm. time. And were but in each documentary and what makes him such a brilliant documentarian is that his style He's this very nice, kind, gentle British person. And he doesn't, he never weighs in with his opinions on things. Mm -hmm. He's exceptional at building rapport with people. He really. Oh, I like he, him already. Yeah, he just dips his toe in the water and he asks very gentle and curious questions in a manner where it puts the counterparty at ease. So he's able to broach, like for instance, he goes to a Miami mega jail on one of them and he's talking to the baddest motherfuckers that have ever lived, you know? And he's like, mm -hmm. tell me, tell me why you fold your sheets in this manner uh, on your bed. Do you know, <laughs> does that mean something special to you? He always presents, he presents his questions in a way that put people at ease and he's able to draw out this exceptional content from these interviews because of his style, which really, when you boil down to a mark, is being objective. 
You know, it's open-mindedness. Mm-hmm. It's welcoming mm-hmm. the exploration of things that make yes. other people uncomfortable. Well, I'm reminded, I, I think you're probably old enough to remember George Carlin, aren't you? Of course. Yeah, he's one of my all-time yeah. favorites. Well, you know, I, you remember the old bit where he comes out and he just reads all these obscene words, and he, and he really breaks the ice, you know? It's, it's like, okay, once you have those out, you can get on with, you know, with the serious stuff. <laughs> but, uh, but we've kind of gone back to a time of Lenny Bruce where you can't speak out anymore. You can't say what's on your mind. I, I, I think our students have forgotten what a joke is. Everybody's so serious. You know, everybody's lost their sense of humor, it seems like. It's really sad. So it's sad for me because, you know, I, I, I have a, I think I have a sense of humor and I like to express, but good Lord, I have to zip it, my mouth shut on campuses these days. Woo. Yeah. And even off campus. I mean, you just said to me, well, you're, right. you're couching what you're, what you're saying in this interview. I mean, it used to I be, am. it used to be that, you know, Mark Defont could go out and have four or five beers at a bar and, you know, comment yep. on the sports game he was watching without having to worry about what he was thinking and uh, now you're, uh, you're second-guessing everything. It's got to be extraordinarily – like, I'm very lucky. I work with a guy who is a, you know, a friend of mine who I know encourages mm-hmm. me to speak my mind, who is similarly situated in the way that we think. But I could never – I could never imagine working for a university where even when I'm off campus and I'm on my Twitter or I'm doing this and I saw you put out a tweet the other day and immediately afterwards you had to put, this is not the opinion of my university – it's like, all right, well, we know the account says fucking <laughs> yeah. Mark Defont. It doesn't say the University of South Florida, you know? But yes. It's just uh, we're driving ourselves insane, Mark. We, we are. And I put out a joke the other day, uh, you know, is it okay to use Dixie Cups? But it's gotten to be that way, you know? Everybody's changing their name now. The Dixie Chicks are no longer the Dixie Chicks. Good yeah. Lord. Yeah, okay. You know, all right. And, and, you know, to some degree, I'm like, all right, if you guys want to, you know, if you want to take it to that degree and you go, you guys want to put yourself through the rigorous mental torture of examining everything on a daily basis. And it's, you know, you can tie anything to anything if you want to. Right. I mean, and they are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, I mean, uh, there was an abolitionist statue torn down the other day. I thought, there's a disconnect here somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they took down the Frederick Douglass statue somewhere. Yeah. They took down yeah. the Abraham Lincoln statue. Yeah. Nothing matters anymore. Crazy time. It wow. is. All right, Mark. Well, listen, my friend. I think we covered a lot today. We I did. Think, I had a great time. Uh, at the least, it's uh, we're probably both ready for a bathroom break in our in our old age. And uh, yep, at, for sure. at best, it's probably time to get the vodka out of the freezer. So uh, I want to thank you so much for coming back thank on you. today. And uh, I really tell me real quick about what you're doing with the second edition of the book, just so that my listeners understand uh, where they can get it, the changes that you're working on making. and, and Oh, the second edition, I'm trying to desperately get it by the end of summer, but I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, but uh, it'll be sometime in the fall. I'll finish it up, and I, I want to sell it on um, as an electronic book now because, you know, there's so many great 
images out there. And when you print a book, you, you know, it's very expensive to print in color. So I'm trying to get it uh, only electronically, but it'll have fabulous pictures in it. So the alternate goal is sometime in, in the fall to be ready for my spring courses. Oh, fantastic. And then you assign yeah. it to your students, do you? Yes, uh, it gets approved by the university as something I can assign because it's the only book of its type available for students. So it's, so it's in essence your magnum opus and you just will continue to update it accordingly. Right. That's what I've been doing for years through PowerPoint presentations for the classes and those videos I sent you. So Awesome. Well, listen, anytime you want to talk about anything, shoot me a message and we'll do this again. And uh, I'm sure... Yeah, let's talk about evolutionary psychology sometime. Definitely. Thank you to enjoy it. Definitely. We'll do that uh, probably in a couple months. We'll have you back on and we'll, uh, we'll get through it all. Always enjoy it, Chris. Mark, Great talking with you. Thank you so much, buddy. I appreciate you. I'll talk thank to you. you soon. That was Mark DeFont from University of South Florida. Awesome. I kind of, you know, met him by happenstance by the fact that he was on that Rogan podcast and I wanted to have him on to talk about Graham Hancock and shit. But once I started following him on Twitter, uh, I really enjoyed what he had to say. So it was nice to have him on and I look forward to having him back again soon. If you want to follow him on Twitter, his uh, Twitter handle is at Mark, M-A-R-C, Defont, D-E-F-A-N-T. And he's only got like 600 followers, so let's uh, let's get him up there. But for right now, that was a nice two hours. I got some shit I got to do. I'm out of here. I will speak to you guys this week. Peace. <laughs>